SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Camaragal people and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yiridamarang, hello, I'm your host Luana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio for this Wednesday the 2nd of August. Coming up on the show today, a conversation with Jakali Romanis, an artist whose artwork titled Dear Dolly with Love 2023 has been shortlisted for the 2023 Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Awards, also known as the Telstra Nazias. Australia's longest running and most prestigious Indigenous art awards taking place later this month. Also coming up on today's show, NITV Radio chats to Charlestown Netball Association President Di Pascoe about the 2023 Koori Netball Tournament taking place in late September with registrations now open. And a story produced by SBS News. There's a record number of Australians enrolled to vote in the upcoming referendum, with the number of First Nations people on the roll at a high record. But there is still a gap between the enrolment of Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, an agreement has been signed to help close the Indigenous health gap. Current Australian of the Year local hero to circumnavigate Australia in support of the Indigenous voice to Parliament. And Prime Minister Anthony Albanese ruled out the Commonwealth negotiating a treaty in this term if the voice to Parliament referendum succeeds. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has ruled out the Commonwealth negotiating a treaty in this term of Parliament if the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum succeeds. After winning last year's federal election, the Prime Minister committed to implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full, which calls for a voice first, followed by treaty and then truth. Asked if he would move to draw up a treaty in this term, should the voice pass, Mr Albanese told the ABC there were states and territories already involved in that process. A treaty is uh, currently uh, being negotiated in uh, Queensland uh, with legislation that was passed by the LNP and the Labor Party, by the way, with bipartisan support uh, from Peter Dutton's LNP uh, in Victoria and in the Northern Territory. So those processes uh, are, are occurring. It's like saying, do you, do you support the sun coming up? It's occurring. 
The Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and Australian Medical Association have signed an agreement designed to help close the Indigenous health gap. The Memorandum of Understanding between the doctors' groups will address racism and discrimination by ensuring cultural safety for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff and patients. The two groups will also work to create new career opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors by promoting their success, growth and excellence. First Nations people currently only make up 0.3% of the doctor workforce in Australia. The current Australian of the Year local hero, Amar Singh, will circumnavigate Australia in an effort to urge those from diverse ethnic, religious and cultural backgrounds to support an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Mr Singh, the Turbans for Australia founder, will spend two months completing the journey. He says the voice is too big of an opportunity to miss out on and he wants all Australians, regardless of their backgrounds, to get on board. Mr Singh will be joined for the first leg of the journey by Sydney's first Indigenous councillor, Yvonne Weldon, who will act as co-driver. His journey can be followed and supported online, with those looking to host or connect with Mr Singh urged to make contact. The New South Wales Greens Party and the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales are calling on the Minns government to immediately stop the industrial logging of koala habitats on the mid-north coast of the state. Earlier this year, the state government committed $80 million to establishing what it calls the Great Koala National Park to help protect the local endangered koala population. However, on Monday, the state-owned Forestry Corporation began logging efforts in the Newry State Forest, which holds significant koala population and falls within the proposed national park. Sue Higginson MP, the New South Wales Green spokesperson for the environment, told NITV she will be calling on the Minns government in Parliament today to stop the logging. What we need to see right now is the government to take responsibility, show leadership and stop logging this precious public native forest and all of the forests that make up the Great Koala National Park. I will be bringing forward a notice of motion in the Parliament asking and calling on the Government and the House to see the end of logging of the Newry State Forest and the other state forests that make up the Great Koala National Park. Former United States President Donald Trump is facing criminal charges for a third time in four months in relation to efforts to overturn his 2022 presidential election defeat. The four-count indictment alleges Mr Trump conspired to defraud the US by preventing Congress from certifying President Joe Biden's victory and to deprive voters of their right to a fair election. He has been ordered to appear before a federal magistrate judge in Washington this week. Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith says the department has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for the January 6 riots. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. 
The Trump campaign says he has always followed the law and it has characterised the indictment as a political persecution reminiscent of Nazi Germany. Housing Minister Julie Collins has reintroduced the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund to the lower house of parliament. The government's centrepiece housing policy to deliver 30,000 social and affordable housing in five years was stalled and blocked by the Greens and Coalition in the Senate for months. The Coalition has said it will not support the bill, while the Greens are still open to negotiations and are asking for a rent freeze or rent increase cap. If the bill is blocked a second time, it will provide the government with a double dissolution trigger to send voters to the polls early. Ms Collins says the most vulnerable Australians need these homes to be built. Vulnerable Australians need the thousands of homes that the Housing Australia Future Fund will deliver. That is why today I am reintroducing the Housing Australia Future Fund Bill 2023 and related bills into the House of Representatives. When I stood in this place many months ago to first introduce these bills, I said the Housing Australia Future Fund will be the start of an enduring promise from the Australian Government that more Australians will have a safe, affordable place to call home. A new report has revealed migrant workers would be better protected from underpayment, exploitation and unsafe conditions under a legislation being put forward by unions, lawyers and human rights groups. The harrowing experiences of several workers have been revealed in the report released by Immigration Minister Andrew Giles. Mr Giles has previously committed to introducing laws to penalise employers preying on vulnerable migrant workers. Unions, lawyers and migrant groups are calling for the introduction of an exploited worker guarantee, allowing employees to report bosses for unfair actions without fear of retaliation. A special commission of inquiry investigating unsolved suspected hate crime deaths of LGBTIQ plus people in New South Wales has been extended. The state government has announced the inquiry will have extra time to deliver its report, which will now be due on August 30. The extension was required given the volume of work being undertaken by the inquiry after receiving and reviewing over 120,000 documents. Victoria's Workplace Safety Watchdog has revealed it terminated 37 fraudulent claims during the 2022-23 financial year. WorkSafe says the claims had a combined projected lifetime cost to the workers' compensation scheme of over $20 million. WorkSafe Insurance Executive Director Roger Arnold says he's proud of the work being done by WorkSafe in identifying and persecuting those rotting the system. The vast majority of injured workers absolutely do the right thing, but there's always a shifty few who think they'll get away with breaking the law. Advances in technology are making it easy to identify fraudsters. However, one of the best sources of information are people who are disgusted with illegal behaviour. Often it's a friend, a family member or a colleague who provides us with information. A new report on foreign interference claims social media apps TikTok and WeChat could become the biggest threat to Australia's national security. The apps are owned by Chinese conglomerates ByteDance and Tencent, which could make them difficult to regulate. The committee that fields the report has submitted 17 recommendations, including the introduction of new transparency requirements for all social media platforms, with those who fail to comply facing a nationwide ban. 
The use of TikTok has been banned on all government-issued devices to remove the risk of espionage. The creators of the app have repeatedly denied any wrongdoing. And in netball, England has cruised to an 89-28 victory over Fiji to qualify for the semi-finals of the Netball World Cup with one Group F game remaining. The Vitality Roses will go into their final group game versus Australia safely in the last four, although the result against one of the tournament favourites will determine who they will face out of New Zealand, Jamaica or South Africa. England head coach Jess Thrillby has praised her squad. We were pretty purposeful today. You know, there's there's hours poured into like lineups and combinations, understanding how they're journeying through the tournament. So I think we definitely got out what we needed today to help inform where we start and and also what that journey through the Australia game may look like. The fact that we're playing all 12 tells you how confident I am in everyone's ability to come on and impact. And I thought you saw again the likes of Liv Cheen coming on. She's grown in confidence every game here, and there there lies the value of trusting in your whole 12. And now a look at today's weather. Perth, rain 18, Adelaide, sunny 20, Melbourne, partly cloudy 17, Hobart, mostly sunny 16, Aubrey-Wodonga, also mostly sunny and 17, Canberra, partly cloudy 18, Wollongong, a shower or two, 19, Sydney, partly cloudy 20, Newcastle, also partly cloudy 21, Brisbane, a possible shower 23, Townsville, a shower or two 26, Cairns, much the same 27, Alice Springs, sunny 26, Darwin, sunny 33, and the Torres Strait Islands, also sunny and 31. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Still to come on the show, NITV Radio chats to Charlestown Netball Association President Di Pasco about the 2023 Koori Netball Tournament taking place in late September with registrations now open. And a story exploring enrolment numbers in the upcoming referendum on the voice to Parliament. But first, the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Awards, also known as the Natsias, will be taking place later this month. The Natsias are the longest-running Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Awards in Australia, and this year they have announced 63 finalists with each state and territory being represented in the prestigious list. NITV Radio sat down with Peter Peter artist Jakali Romanis, whose artwork titled Dear Dolly with Love 2023 has been shortlisted for this year's awards. NITV Radio's Birchin Tungandami has more. And now we're about to talk about Dear Dolly with Love 2023, an artwork that has been shortlisted for Australia's longest-running and most prestigious Indigenous Art Awards, the Telstra National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Art Awards, Natias. And joining us to talk about this artwork is none other than Peter Peter Woman, emerging artist, researcher and curator, Jakali Felicitas Romanis. Jakali, welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
You're based in uh, on the Kulin Nation, I believe, and uh, this artwork takes us back to a totally different place and in another era. Tell us about this artwork. This artwork is centered around my great-grandmother Dolly, Dolly Creed, who was taken from Pitta Pitta country, which is located about four hours south of Mount Isa, and she was sent to a mission on Palm Island. But the artwork is a combination of photographs and poetry, um, and it's sort of a, a kind of poem that I've written to Dolly as a sort of love letter of thoughts, and I am reflecting on a portrait of her which features in the artwork that was taken by a man called Norman Tyndale, who was an anthropologist that travelled through a series of Aboriginal communities as a researcher. And I'm kind of thinking about Dolly's position in that photograph um, and how that photograph has ended up in the South Australian Museum Archive. And so just reflecting on, you know, parts of her life, but also how the camera itself has sort of been utilised as a tool of violence um, for research purposes towards Aboriginal people. That photo is kind of layered with photographs that I've made of country as a sort of way of bringing Dolly back back home. It's a way of bringing Dolly back home, but uh, when you say uh, the photograph uh, of Dolly, your grandmother was taken by uh, Norman Tyndale, it's a time when they were doing some uh, questionable research about uh, First Nations people being removed from land and uh, really mistreated, and the way they were portrayed also was a portrayal through uh, racist and uh, colonial lens. And uh, your work is not just about uh, art, it's also about uh, how archives are used and how Indigenous stories are told. Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, I was very privileged last year to um, have the opportunity to travel to the South Australian Museum and spend time in the archive and actually see the hard copy documents and photographs that, you know, kind of detailed things about my family. Yeah, it's sort of like interesting thinking about access to those documents and the fact that they sort of, you know, sit in storage for many years. I was thinking about when the last time someone had actually held this photograph of Dolly, you know, when was the last time that she was, I suppose, taken out of storage and held by, you know, a family member. Just yeah, reflecting on on what it means to finally be able to do that. Um, yeah. Would you be able to obtain this photograph as a family uh, possession or it just belongs to the museum and nobody in your family can access it? So I, I have kind of consent from the museum to have access to this photograph. Um, it still resides in the archive there, but Certainly, you know, digital copies can be obtained. But, yeah, ultimately you need consent from from the museum for using it. Yeah, whether that's for family research or for artwork, like how I've used it in that way. Um, 
During that time uh, when the photograph was taken, actually it was a time when uh, well, photography wasn't as widespread as today when everyone has got a camera in their pocket, basically. Back then it had to be really staged. And uh, I remember just reading in some... Um, very recently the book of uh, Shona Bostock, actually, she describes how how great-grandparents and uh ancestors when they were photographed uh, they were staged made to sit in a certain way made to carry some object and things like that so it's uh, sometimes even a violation of their privacy and their human rights it was not uh, consented uh, did you get to know in which conditions uh, the portrait of your grandmother was taken yeah so um jolly she was I, you know it's kind of Sort of looks a bit like a mugshot, I suppose. You've got the kind of like front-on, very serious portrait, and then the side-on portrait. To kind of accompany the photographs, there are sort of documents that uh, talk to measurements, so physical measurements of how far apart her eye sits, you know, her brow, um, how tall she is. It's it's a very uh, it feels quite extractive as a practice and you know as you were saying before Tyndale I suppose had problematic sort of approaches to research and a lot of his work uh, was kind of centered around this idea of the dying race and so he was I guess you know researching family members and connecting family members and doing that from the perspective that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were were going to be bred out, essentially. Yeah, because uh, Tyndale was a, a scientist, but with a quotation marks in my view, because he studied insects, he studied uh, people, he studied history. He was uh, a jack-of-all-trades in terms of research. He was in the military, he was in... Um, how do you call it, a missionary as well at some point. So he would have used any of uh, the hats that he wore to carry out some um, kind of research. So ethically today, the kind of things that he did wouldn't be allowed. No, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what I'm speaking to in this work. It's it's sort of recognizing that, um, you know, there's a human in this photograph and she... She has really complex histories and that's, you know, connected to my family history. But, you know, in saying that as well, I think it's interesting to kind of reflect on Tyndale's practices and really think about um, whilst they were problematic, you know, a lot of his work also has given people the chance to understand their family history and where they come from. And so it's a kind of interesting conflict in that um, whilst I'm sort of pointing at the problematic nature of his work, without his work, you know, I wouldn't know where I come from necessarily. I wouldn't even know what my great-grandmother Dolly looks like. So it's, yeah, I guess recognising that there's both sides of, of, the, of his work, yeah. So in a way, you're kind of appreciative and uh, certain, in another way, it's a little bit confronting and problematic as well at the same time. 
Yes, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, this brings us to another side of your work because you're also uh, doing research and uh, doing uh, a doctorate. And uh, one of the things you question is how modern uh, photographic and uh, video tools actually uh, violate indigenous rights. Is Did I frame that correctly, this question? Or just uh, yeah, tell us about your research and... Uh, uh, the conflict between uh, First Nations knowledge and occupation of space and uh, how people like um, the Googles of this world um, violate uh, or conflict with um, Indigenous people's rights and uh, knowledges. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, photography in Australia, within, you know, an Australian context, certainly uh, early practices were... Um, yeah, exploitative towards, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I didn't give agency or recognition to the, the subjects of these photographs and were used as sort of tools of violent research. But, you know, as you kind of touched on with, with Google Earth in particular, I look at different mapping technologies and how they sort of represent country or don't represent country. And sort of the intersection of, you know, cartography with imaging technology like photography and how these two things are so tightly woven together nowadays and sort of thinking about the implications of those things, particularly when we consider Western mapping practices and, and how, you know, often they've been used as sort of tools of continuing colonialism essentially you know not including indigenous knowledges of place or indigenous knowledges of country in the sort of main mainstream so i'm trying my best within my practice and my research to subvert a lot of these kind of colonial uses of the camera and of imaging technologies and trying to use the camera as a tool of education but also um yeah, for, for lack of a better word, kind of indigenizing the lens or tr- trying to portray a different story whilst using this tool that historically was quite violent towards my people. Yeah, and when are you finishing so you can uh, maybe, I don't know if you're going to publish your uh, uh, thesis or publish it as a book or make it available for the wider audience because it's something I would really like to uh, get my hands on and uh, explore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping to finish next year, the end of next year. So there will be a thesis or an exegesis, I should say, technically, um, because because the work is practice-led. So the research, you know, I'm considering theory and all of that stuff, but also making artwork. So, yeah, the exegesis will be published, um, but then I'll also... Uh, have an exhibition as well but yeah I think that's quite important to me um, working within you know the confines of a of an institution it's important that uh, you know it's published so my community can actually look at it and all of this work is I kind of do this you know for my family and for my community uh, and the people that come after me as well, 
in these institutional spaces. Like representation is really important. So, yeah, <laughs> hopefully next year. <laughs> next year. And uh, before I let you go, besides your work that will be exhibited uh, in August at uh, uh, in Darwin on Larakia Country in the context of these awards, where else can people find your work? Um, I've got a website. Um, if you just type in my name into Google, it should come up. Uh, I have an Instagram account as well. Uh, but I also, for, for those who are based uh, on Cool and Land, I've actually got a solo show at the moment showing at the Museum of Australian Photography, um, which is on until late August. So if you're around, I've got some work um, in an exhibition there at the moment. Jakali Felicitas Romanis, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio and wish you all the best for the awards. Thank you. Thanks so much. And the Telstra Natsia Awards Ceremony will be happening on Friday, August 11 on Larrakia Country, with the exhibition officially opening to the public on Saturday, August 12th at the Museum of Art and Art Gallery of Northern Territory. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back, I'm your host Luana Grant and you're listening to NITV Radio. Up next, a story produced by SBS News. A record number of Australians have enrolled to vote in the upcoming referendum on enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. The number of First Nations people on the roll is also at a record high, but there is still a gap between the enrolment of Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. New numbers released by the Australian Electoral Commission have been welcomed as the best indicator for demographic participation in the country's electoral history. Announcing the new data, Australian Electoral Commissioner Tom Rogers says it's a great day for Australian democracy and the culmination of years of work to get people enrolled. The AEC is getting ready to deliver the referendum in whatever date that might be uh, and we're preparing, including preparing the pamphlet which will be distributed to every address in Australia at which there's an enrolled elector with the yes and the no case and some additional information from the AEC. So things are well underway, we're on track, we're very proud of the work that we've done to get the level of enrolment to where it is at the moment Um, and it's a fantastic result. The first referendum in 23 years appears on track to receive a record voter turnout. The AEC says the national enrolment rate is at 97.5%, up from 97.1% at the end of last year. For the first time, Indigenous enrolment is above 90%, with 60,000 more Indigenous Australians registered to vote. The new figure of 94.1% Indigenous enrolment represents a near 10% jump on last year's numbers. The Northern Territory, which has typically lagged behind, is now at 92% enrolment, which is the first time it's passed the 90% mark. It's the same for the youth enrolment rate, which, at 90.3%, is also above 90 for the first time since records began. Electoral Commissioner Tom Rogers says that spike in the Indigenous enrolment rate is especially pleasing. Today's news is is, uh, unalloyed good news. You know, when we've got that enrolment rate up to over 94%, just over 94%, 10% growth within the last 12 months, in fact, frankly, even the last six months, it's been a stellar growth. Uh, It's one of those measures that really the gap is closing on that. We're very proud of the work we've done. 
Dr Jill Shepherd from the Australian National University says the numbers are a testament to the work done by the Commission. In terms of those core demographics, and we're talking here, young voters and particularly Indigenous voters, these are unprecedented by 10 percentage points and more. Um, I, I think most observers are genuinely shocked today at how well the Commission has done to engage a lot of these potential voters. Now it's the job of the political parties, the politicians in Australia, uh, community leaders to keep those voters engaged and see if they come back from election to election because if they drop off between referendums, then all of this has really been for nothing. Even though voting in the referendum is compulsory, there's no guarantee the record enrolment figure will translate into voter turnout. The election last year saw more than 2% drop in people voting relative to the electoral roll. The ANU's Dr Jill Shepherd again. It's one thing to enrol these voters uh, to get them on the the electoral register. It's quite another thing to get them to turn out to vote. Uh, That's particularly true of young people and it's probably going to be true of a lot of uh, voters in remote communities who have been enrolled in this recent push. Uh, The AEC has updated a lot of their methods in terms of getting people onto the electoral roll, but getting them to turn up and then getting them to re-engage election after election is quite another thing. A date for the referendum has still not been announced, but it's expected to be in the final quarter of the year. That story produced by Ty Sokusi for SBS News. Next, a story by NITV News about Indigenous-led organisation, the Aboriginal Housing Company, which celebrated 50 years of business last week. The celebrations coincided with the completion of its urban renewal project, the Pemilwuy Project, at Redfern's The Block. Ricky Kirby reports. The cutting of a ribbon to mark the completion of a transformation 20 years in the making. Ah, Very emotional because, you know, everybody played a part here. All hands, you know was involved to build this community for our next generation of children. And it's just a blessing. The Pemilwe precinct, formerly the block, is largely student accommodation. But it also includes affordable housing for 62 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, a childcare service, a gym, a gallery and a commercial space. The development, though, has not come without controversy. From the time it started, where there was a struggle, um, to when we ended up, you know, it, it grew, and but we, we actually went downhill a bit as a community. To see it take this full turn now, and all that community still here and involved in the healing process and in this completion, it's uh, it's very satisfying. But it's um, it's meant to be, you know. It's like it's uh, a showing that our people uh, can fight on and can rebuild and empower ourselves to to do this sort of thing. I think we've addressed any concerns, um, whether or not there was ever going to be Aboriginal housing built, we've, we've addressed all that. I think we've met the conditions for any type of concerns there would have been and the proof is in the pudding today. It's completion coinciding with the company's 50th year celebrations. It's just, it's so surreal, it's the most incredible milestone and to, to have our completion celebration fall on our 50th, which wasn't intended, just means so much. Ricky Kirby, NITV News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. 
Welcome back to NITV Radio. Registrations are now open for the 2023 Koori Netball Tournament, hosted by Charlestown Netball Association with the support of the New South Wales Office of Sport and Netball New South Wales. The tournament features six divisions, including women's and mixed for both adults and juniors. Up to a 1,000 netballers from across New South Wales are expected to, to participate in this year's tournament, which will be held at Charlestown Netball Courts near Newcastle on Saturday the 28th and Sunday the 29th of October. The tournament provides an opportunity for netballers to showcase their talent in a competitive and inclusive environment. And in an effort to enhance reconciliation, teams may feature both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal players. NITV Radio's Birchin Tungandami chats to Charlestown Netball Association President Di Pascoe. Registrations for the 2023 Koori Netball Tournament are now open, and I'm happy to say that uh, Di Pasco, Charlestown Netball Association President, has just joined us on NITV Radio to shed some light on this uh, tournament that's celebrating its 23rd anniversary this year. Di, welcome, and thanks for joining us on NITV Radio today. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Now, Di, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is the 23rd year, and uh, I heard that uh, for the first edition, you only had nine teams, nine Koori teams represented in the tournament, but this year, you're expecting to break some new records with uh, close or more to more than 100 teams represented. Yes, we certainly are. The first year was probably as exciting to us as what it is going to be this year to be able to host a tournament that's such a wonderful community event. This year we're hoping to hit over the 100. We did hit over 100 teams the year before COVID and it sort of dropped off a little bit because we couldn't host it before COVID. So last year we had um, 94 teams, so we're hoping to hit over the 100 teams this year. Wow, that's quite a lot of players to gather in the space of uh, just one weekend because I gather the tournament lasts only one weekend. It is a lot of players and the for me the, the best thing is that they not only come as players, the families come and it is a wonderful reunion weekend for the Koori people. You know, people have relatives in the Riverina and some up in Kempsey and it's a, it's a wonderful catch-up for all of them as well. So... Besides the players, I would say we probably get, every player would probably bring at least a minimum of two people each with them. Well, so each player could uh, come with a mate, a sibling or a relative or even their parents. So, yeah, it's a great community event. But it's not just about uh, competitiveness and uh, developing the game. It's also a community event, as you just explained. But what are the rules uh, to be able to participate and compete in this tournament? Uh, do they all have to be Koori or they can have uh, mixed teams? And uh, what are the uh, conditions exactly to be able to participate? The rules state that um, every team can have a maximum of three non-Indigenous players in the team. There's seven playing, but most teams come with um, at least nine to ten players, so three of those players can be non-Indigenous. But having said that, I would say that most teams are completely um, Indigenous teams. Now, besides the 
community spirit, the camaraderie, and so on. After all, it's a competitive event. So what are the teams vying for on a sports uh, level? Um, there's there's always there's trophies. There's a big major perpetual trophy to win at the end of uh, at the at the end of the weekend uh, in all divisions. Um, and then throughout the competition, um, we get um, supported by Netball New South Wales, where they pick the fifteen to seventeen year old age groups, and they pick um, talent identify for uh, the programs for Netball New South Wales. Wow, that alone raises the stakes. Uh, yeah, the presence of scouts who will be looking to actually recruit uh, the next uh, big name that will be shining on the national and even the international stage. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, they certainly do. They run an Indigenous program, but then they're integrated as well. Um, and I guess I don't like that word, integrated. They just become a part of Netball New South Wales wow, as can- um, talented identification. And uh, can you give us one or two names of uh, people who have come through this tournament to go on to build uh, illustrious careers on a state, national, or even a higher level? There's um, Nikita Jackson, uh, Dakota Thomas. There are a couple of young girls there in their early 20s, and they are playing now for Premier League and move on to um, the Swifts and the Giants, which is the um, national competition. And then from there, they get identified to play in uh, in the Diamonds. Wow. And uh, this explains the interest and uh, the enthusiasm for this uh, tournament because this is a place where actually illustrious careers can be launched. Exactly. We um, opened nominations last week and we've already got um, at least, I think it's about 12 teams have already registered and the competition's not till October. So um, it's looking good. Yeah, so the tournament will take place on uh, the 28th and the 29th of October, so the last weekend of October. Besides the camaraderie and uh, competitive side of the tournament, it's also said that's an event that uh, fosters uh, reconciliation. Oh, oh yes, it's, it's amazing. It, um, I really can't explain in words how I feel with it. It's just the most amazing community event that um, I have ever been involved in, and I've been involved in a lot in a while, but it is a, a wonderful community event and our people um, at Charlestown Netball, um, the Netball New South Wales people that get involved, um, they just embrace it and it is an amazing step towards reconciliation. Now coming to the practical side of uh, the tournament because just uh, wanting to be part of this tournament is not enough. There's also a cost to be born by the participants, uh, how much would it cost to be able to get involved in this tournament? Every team pays a, a price to be a part of it, and literally that is it. Um, they just come with themselves. They do find their own accommodation for the weekend. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a, a gathering. Yeah, any financial cost, uh, no matter how small it is, could uh, make or break uh, uh, competitors' uh, dreams. The cost of the accommodation uh, could uh, prevent some of the would-be participants into making it into the tournament. 
Yes, you're right, it could, uh, but there are grant opportunities for um, teams to apply to um, their local councils, to um, the government, to, to see that the, there's local government grants that will um, enable, and some of them are, are a $500 grant per person, and that would cover that person for the weekend and they can apply for those grants. And a lot of them actually do get in and apply for the grants because not only is it their accommodation, but it's their uniforms that they play in. And most teams have to uh, buy a new uniform because their teams change from year in and year out. So uh, there are those added expenses, but um, there are, as I said, there are grants that, that they can apply for. I'd hate for anyone to miss out because of financial difficulty because it's just so wonderful. The good thing about it is the fact that the men have now joined in and we have the mixed competitions, the senior mixed competitions. So when they're coming for the weekend, it's not just the girls on the court playing netball and the men sitting minding the, the little critters on the side. It's they can be a part of it as well. So it's very important to put the news out there as soon as possible so that uh, the would-be competitors and uh, teams can uh gather their funds, uh, raise funds, uh, apply for grants so they can, uh, yeah, so they have an opportunity to be there and uh, shine on the grant stage. Yes, they have an amazing amount of talent. Netball is just their sport. They're very, very talented. And participants come from uh, many parts of New South Wales. It's not just uh, from uh, the local area on uh, the north coast of New South Wales. No, 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 no. They come from as far as Tweed. Up in the north to um, Wagga, Broken Hill, they all come across for the, the weekend. It's a wonderful weekend. Wow, wow. We'll put the information out there so the teams and participants have time to prepare themselves, gather the funds that are required and, uh, yeah, train to be part of this uh, very competitive tournament. Now, Di, before I let you go, any closing thoughts? I would just encourage everyone to come because it is just such a wonderful weekend. We certainly will look after you and uh, you will get great competition as well as uh, a wonderful catch-up with uh, relatives and friends from all over the state. Di Pasco, thanks for joining us on ATV Radio. It's been a really great pleasure talking to you. It's my pleasure and I look forward to it. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio. And that's all we have time for on today's program. You can listen back to the show anytime online or catch any of our stories on our website at sbs.com.au. And you can also find us on Facebook. NITV Radio will be back on Friday, 1 till 2 p.m., with more stories from right across the country. Today, we end the show with a track by Birds. I'm your host, Luana Grant, Mundungor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>